This morning, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, our text is verses 18 through 38. The topic, Jesus encourages us to pray that laborers would be sent out into the spiritual harvest. So the title of our message is, How to Induce Laborers to Have a Word of Prayer. It's a hobby. Father, we, we do thank you this morning for, uh, we just thank you, Lord. You're, you're a good God. You're a gracious God. You're full of mercy and, and wonder. Lord, when we don't understand how you're working, we, we know you are working all things together for the good because we love you and are called according to your purpose. We're realistic, Lord, about the, the suffering and the anguish in our world but we're also realistic about the fact that you are our Savior and Lord and that you're you're building a place for us and you're gonna come back for us and we're gonna be with you forever. As Nick prayed earlier, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you in a personal way, in a saving way, they've never confessed their sin and asked you to save them, never repented, Lord, and been born again, I pray that today would be a day that your spirit would strive with them You'd actually be aggressive, Lord, in revealing Jesus to them and that they would come to know you. Those of us who do know you, Lord, I pray that we would be in, uh, greatly encouraged by this text. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. When James Cameron shot Avatar in native 3D, it changed the way Hollywood made movies, whether you like it or not. Since then, almost every major blockbuster has been produced with a 3D viewing option. How many of you are 3D movie fans? Any? Some of you? A couple of you? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big 3D fan. I get motion sick. And this is gonna be even worse because a South Korean company wants to bring 4D movies into North American theaters or what they call 4D. It'll give audiences more than a 1,000 sensations as they watch the big screen. They'll install nozzles in your seat that spray water and sound, sight, or not sights, but scents, and your seat will move and you know things like that. And so you'll be even more sick than you were before. <laughs> Uh, outside the theater, we don't need glasses to experience the real world in 3D and 4D on our own. We don't, however, always see things as we should. We don't see things completely, especially as Christians, we need to be able to see things spiritually beyond those dimensions. I want to suggest that Jesus looked at the world not in 3D or 4D, but what I'm calling 12D. Here's why. Looking out upon humanity, Jesus saw it as a field ripe for harvest. When we look out at humanity, I I don't know what we see, but Jesus in this chapter looks out at it and he says, it's a field ripe for spiritual harvest. And then in the very next chapter, he chooses 12 disciples, that's why I'm calling it 12D, to be special apostles to go out into that field as its laborers. Our text is gonna give us the opportunity to talk about how Jesus sees people when he looks upon them. And we're also gonna start by talking about how people see Jesus when they look to him. I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, what do you see when you look to Jesus? And number two, what does Jesus see when he looks upon you? Verses 18 through 34, what do you see? Now in these verses, a series of people look to Jesus to solve what they consider to be their deepest needs. One man's 12-year-old daughter has just died. A woman had been suffering for 12 years with an incurable malady. Two men were blind. Another man was a demon-possessed mute. Individually, their faith is all over the map. 
For example, the two blind men will hail Jesus as the Messiah. They'll give him a title as their Messiah, while the woman will see approaches him with superstition. The demon-possessed mute had no faith, really, of his own, but is brought to Jesus by those who did have some measure of faith. All of them understand their plight and look to Jesus as their last best resort. Do you hear that or is it just me? Okay, thank you. I thought I was losing my mind. It's probably me, but anyway. Apart from having running water and air conditioning, which we appreciate, our modern world is not so different than the world of Jesus. Daughters and sons die Women and men suffer from incurable maladies. There are blind men and women as well as those both demon-oppressed and demon-possessed, and that's just really scratching the surface of the suffering in our world. And so let's look at the cast of characters Jesus encountered and draw some parallels. Verse 18, while he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshiped him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. The word ruler means that he was an official in the local synagogue. He was a highly respected Jew. Jesus was at a feast at Matthew's house that was attended by tax collectors and sinners. None of them set foot in that local synagogue. They couldn't set foot in it even if they had wanted to because their careers and their conduct rendered them ceremonially unclean. They were not welcome in the synagogue. How interesting that the ruler must set foot in Matthew's house in order to plead with Jesus. Matthew's guests couldn't go to the synagogue, but the synagogue ruler had to go to Matthew's house. His religious rituals and the religious officials were of no possible help to him. We might say that his need drove him from religion to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Since by definition, religion is something you do in your strength to try to please God, it ultimately must fail. We need God to help us, not the other way around. Verse 20 says, and suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment, for she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. No use speculating about this flow of blood. We're just not told. Whatever it was, it rendered her ceremonially unclean. For at least 12 years, she could not worship with other Jews. And in fact, she had to stay away from people completely because the Jews uh, could not come into contact with blood unless it made them unclean and they had to go through cleaning rituals. I'm not talking about just dirty. I mean unclean spiritually so that they had to go through certain rituals in order to be able to approach God. Now, she obviously had a very superstitious attitude. It's no wonder when you read about some of the suggested cures for her malady, these are real. I'm not making them up. In fact, I'm not smart enough to make them up. In the Jewish Talmud, one suggested cure for a problem like this was to carry with you everywhere you went ostrich eggs. Some of you think, I've got a couple right here. Another was to, now this is my favorite. Another was to carry barley corn that was obtained from the dung of a white donkey. Perhaps you've heard of civet coffee. Have you, has anybody heard of that coffee, civet coffee? Civets are some kind of crazy 
I don't know, cats or animals. I always say they're monkeys, but they're not. But there's some kind of creature somewhere in the world that eats coffee cherries and then excretes them. And then in a very scientific process, people collect the coffee beans and they uh, roast them into the, supposedly the greatest tasting coffee in the world. I haven't tried it only because it's like $100 a half a pound. And, and, and so, but one of these days, I will let you know. Now, we laugh about these cures, but how many weird cures have folks suggested to you over the years for a condition that you might have or had? And I can't really give you an example. I was going to give you some examples, but I realized I would hurt some people's feelings. Because you think, that's not weird. That's what Grandma Smith used to do. And uh, so, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Somebody, they find out that there's something wrong with you, and they say, hey, here's what you need to do. You need to let a steamroller run over your head and, you know, that kind of, and people come up with crazy things. Keep your cures to yourself. If somebody comes up to you and says, hey, do you have a crazy cure for what I'm going through? Then share it. Otherwise, stay anonymous. Verse 22, but Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Think of the incredible grace of the Lord. This woman approached him all wrong. Not just in the Jewish sense of being unclean and such, and that she shouldn't have been in the crowd or pressing forward or touch him at all. She approached him with superstition, thinking his garment was somehow juiced with power. He met her at her need and healed her despite her errors. Jesus was careful to clarify that it wasn't the garment that healed her. He said it was her faith in God, small and confused though it was. Today it's not the hem of a garment, but maybe the shroud of Turin, or the Holy Grail. Do you really think at the Last Supper Jesus had some ornate uh, diamond-studded grail that he was drinking from? I don't think so. Or there's the spear that pierced Jesus' side that appears in myth. Or some other supposedly powerful relic that make pilgrimages to in order to find healing. Or maybe the place the Virgin Mary is supposed to have appeared. It's my understanding that the altar in every Catholic church has a relic something that a saint either touched or wore or, if you're really fortunate, a fragment of bone from that saint. Did you know that? Now, say what you will about that. It's superstition. It's creepy. As far as I know, there are no relics here. Not relics of famous Baptists. Certainly no relics of anybody uh, in our era. But anyway, it's, it's so superstition. All I'm saying is that superstition abounds today. You think, oh, these Bible people, you know, so superstitious. Hey, we are worse, if anything. Verse 23, when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, while I'm sure funeral customs varied in the first century, even as they do today, every funeral seemed to have flute players striking discordant notes and they had lots of wailing. Now, the Jewish culture is a very expressive culture anyway, but you could hire professional wailers. So today, maybe at a wedding, you're looking for a photographer and a caterer and different individuals to hire. In those days, at a funeral, you, you had professional wailers. So you'd go to make arrangements, and they'd say, hey, this gal can really wail. I mean, if you're looking for a wailer, <laughs> I mean, shit. 
I wonder if one of their taglines are enough to almost wake the dead. But anyway, um, so they had all these things going. So, so Jesus comes up to Jairus' house. This is his name we get from the other gospels. And, and, and the funeral is in full swing. The flute player, and these women are wailing. I'm not going to do any wails for you. Um, but uh, I'm not. I feel like it's a hostile crowd. Anyway, it's no weirder than some of our own funeral practices. I mean, it, some of the things that we do are just bizarre. If, I've been to enough funerals. I've been to hundreds of funerals uh, as an officiant, and uh, I've seen so many strange things uh, that you just think, what is that all about? How could that honor anybody? But anyway, verse 24, he said to them, make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. Now, by sleeping, Jesus meant she was definitely dead, but not permanently dead. She was dead, but would momentarily be raised by him from the dead. They ridiculed him. Maybe, Jesus, if you had gotten here on time, maybe if you hadn't stopped to heal the woman with the issue of blood, maybe then you could have healed this little girl. But with her death, they assumed that all hope was gone. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose And the report of this went out into all that land. Now, in his three-and-a-half-year ministry, Jesus raised three people from the dead, Jairus' daughter here, the widow's son at Nain, and his friend Lazarus. I don't want to minimize the miracle of raising the dead, but it wasn't a widespread miracle. As Jesus went around healing all manner of sickness and casting out all demons, he didn't raise that many people from the dead. It was definitely just a credential to prove that he was the Messiah. Uh, now, for one thing, uh, you, think, you think it's a great thing to be raised from the dead, but all of these people Jesus raised, Jairus' daughter, the widow's son at Nain, and his friend Lazarus, they all had to die again. In fact, when Lazarus was called forth from the grave, It was that point at which the religious leaders got together and said, we have to do something about this. We need to kill them both. You've just seen somebody raised from the dead and your conclusion is we need to kill them. It's crazy, I know, but it it wasn't, and and, you know, it's got to be kind of an extreme experience to have to die twice. Uh, And so for whatever reason, there weren't a lot of resurrections going on, just enough. We're literally surrounded by and overwhelmed by death. It seems like an indiscriminate enemy. It kills young and old alike from all walks of life when you least are prepared for it. Apart from the blessed hope of the rapture, everyone you see or ever will see, they're going to die. It is in the presence of death that this question, what do you see when you look to Jesus, takes on its most serious meaning. Because if you're a Christian, you see hope knowing your loved one is absent from their body but present in heaven with the Lord, that one day you will be reunited with them in your own glorified body. And the Christian faith, our belief in Jesus Christ, we're the only ones on the planet throughout history that have the hope of eternal life. And we have it based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead proving that he is who he said he was, did what he said he was going to do, and will do everything that he's promised. No one else has any hope. I've, again, at the multitude of funerals I've been to, there's always false hope that people throw out there. 
people say the craziest stuff at funerals. Oh, he died or she died doing what they wanted. Yeah, no, they didn't. They, they didn't die doing what they wanted. Oh, they're in a better place. Not necessarily. What are you basing that on? We'll see him or her again. Maybe. There's a lot of wishful thinking. And then there's the Christians who come up with an absolute assurance from the word of God because of the son of God and say, this is what's happening right now to your loved one. It's a precious thing, really. I think we can take it for granted if we're not careful. Verse 27, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. He touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, see that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. Son of David was a title of the Messiah. It's been noted that these blind men saw more than most people when it came to Jesus. They didn't see him with their eyes. They saw him in the spirit and they knew who he was. He wasn't just a miracle worker, not just someone who could heal them. He was their Messiah who would have mercy upon them and upon Israel. Now for his part, it's interesting, the Lord waited, letting these guys follow him back to Matthew's house before engaging in dialogue with them. It reminds us of the patience of faith. They believed the Lord would show them mercy and they waited upon him until he did. They didn't get discouraged, at least in the sense that they quit following him. They continued to follow until his mercy broke through. Mercy can sometimes be severe. I don't think we're ever ready for that. We ask God to show us mercy we mean change our situation right now, heal us or help us. Sometimes mercy can be severe. A book that I really still recommend, it's an, it's an older book, but it's called A Severe Mercy. And it's based on letters that were exchanged between Sheldon Van Auken and C.S. Lewis. And the situation in a nutshell was Van Auken was married uh, they were deeply in love, he and his wife. Then his wife became a Christian, and he didn't. And then she died. She had a terrible bout with, I believe it was cancer, and she died. And he was embittered and um, angry. And he began writing to C.S. Lewis because they were both professors, I believe. And at one point, Lewis told him that his wife's death was for him a severe mercy because it confronted him with the reality of eternal life and what are you going to do about Jesus Christ? And he became a Christian. And so, so that, that's not the kind of mercy that we usually are thinking of. But it is God's mercy. It's an eternal mercy. It's a wonderful mercy because it's much more important that Sheldon Van Auken come to know Christ and spend eternity with him than he have 10 or 20 or 40 years of relative happiness on earth with his wife. Uh, and so mercy can be severe, but we need patience waiting and seeing all that God intends to accomplish in and through us. And I love these blind guys in the sense that they're walking along asking for mercy. Jesus seems to be ignoring them until he gets to a point when he engages them and then he shows them his mercy. And so let them be a lesson to us. Now, there's all manner of speculation as to why the Lord wanted these two guys to keep quiet. The point the text makes is that they disobeyed him. 
Now, I know it's hard to keep quiet when you've been blind and now you can see, but Jesus specifically commanded them not to tell, and they did. And now, while we can sympathize with them, it doesn't excuse their disobedience. You can do a right thing the wrong way or at the wrong time. Timing is an important thing in your walk and in your witness. Listen to the Lord, do what he asks, and then do it how he asks. And so a lot of times people say, hey, why don't we do this, or why aren't we doing that, or why don't we go here, or why don't we do this? It's not the Lord's time. It's not the right way to go about it. Uh, and so we need to be led by the Lord. There are, there are any number of things that you could be doing, any number of places you could be going, but where does the Lord want you right now? Now, as they went out, verse 32, behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never seen like this in Israel Gospels are careful to distinguish between disease and demon possession. There is both. And between diseases that have what we would deem natural causes and those that are supernaturally caused by the devil. There are both. This man's muteness seemed to be connected with his demon possession. Jesus dealt with the root of the problem and the symptoms were then alleviated. He cast out the demon and the muteness that was being caused by the demon, in this case, was relieved. Now, people in need often want only to deal with the symptoms of their problem. The real root is usually spiritual. Heal them spiritually and everything else will fall into place. Try to just deal with the symptoms and you're just spinning your wheels. For example, often in marriage counseling, a couple will cite, let's say, communication as their big issue. They'll sit down and they'll say, hey, what, what's going on with you guys? Well, we can't seem to communicate. And immediately, if you're not careful, you start thinking of ways to help them communicate, techniques that have been developed by you know, people, whether it's counting to 10 before you say anything or listening more than talk. I mean, there's a lot of different things that, that we could read about when it comes to communication. But usually, 99 times out of 100, the real issue is selfishness and the need for one or both of them to repent from their sin. It's not that they need help communicating. It's that they're unable to communicate because they're so stinking selfish and they're in sin and they need to realize that and repent. And then once you repent, you know what? It clears everything out of the way. Everything is gone and then they're communicating in and with Christ and with one another. And so uh, no amount of communication tips are going to heal a marriage if there is a spiritual problem. You have to go to the deepest spiritual problem uh, and not just deal with the symptoms. Pharisee, verse 34, said, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. I guess you gotta say something, right? You have to say something. I remember my dad right after I got saved, saying that if you read the Bible too much, you'll go crazy. <laughs> it made no sense, but it kept him from thinking any further about the Bible or the God of the Bible. That was the standard answer. Dad, you should read the Bible. You read the Bible too much, you'll go crazy. And of course, nobody wants to go crazy. Now, what my dad said seems stupid. But is it any stupider than those who claim that order can come out of chaos? Godless scientists and philosophers gotta say something when confronted with the intelligent design of the universe. But what they say is stupid. You know, just because somebody is smart doesn't mean that what they're saying is smart. It's stupid. You used to think, man, we've got you. We got you cornered now. This wristwatch, 
Did all of the parts just miraculously come together and form a wristwatch, or are they the product of intelligent design? And these smart guys with the PhDs and, and all, they say, well, it's possible that they all just came together like that. <laughs> what? Well, yeah, if you postulate an infinite number of universes with an infinite number of possibilities, it's possible we live in that one universe where everything came together by chance. And I guess you gotta say something because you're busted. The biggest thing now, you, you don't realize this maybe, but these same stupid scientists, because you prove, you know, as we get deeper into science, it's proving that evolution can't be true. It can't be true. And so now they're thinking, well, it can't be God. I know who it was, alien astronauts. <laughs> they visited Egypt pictures of them on the wall and stuff like that. And it's crazy. I know who it was. It was demons posing as alien astronauts, making people stupid. But uh, <laughs> running water and air conditioning, we mentioned those. I'd add sliced bread in the iPhone as far as the greatest advances in modern culture. Apart from those, the world is much the same as it was when Jesus walked upon it. We might beat a few medical maladies here and there, but we're still suffering and dying. It's the same way in another very important way as well. Jesus is still here in the lives of his followers. Whether the folks around us are looking to Jesus or not, as we walk through life, we ought to do it believing that at any given moment, someone we are encountering is in need. They're in great need of Jesus. We ought to meet them where they are and let God touch them through us. Now, verses 35 through 38, what does Jesus see when he looks upon you? It's common for both believers and non-believers to wonder what God is thinking about them or even if he thinks about them at all. It's tough to walk by faith anytime, but especially in those times when heaven seems silent and God seems a spectator rather than a participant. In times like those, you need to remember a passage like these next few verses because it establishes exactly how God looks upon you at all times. Verse 35, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Jesus was God in human flesh. In the book of Hebrews, God said, I used to talk to you through prophets and in various other ways. Now I'm revealing myself to you through my son, Jesus Christ. What Jesus went about doing is what God delights to do. He revealed God to us as a healer and a helper. And so anytime that you think God is something other than that, that he thinks of you in some other way, it can't be true because Jesus said, this is how I look upon humanity. Sure, there's plenty of sickness and disease among us, but he's not to be blamed for it. He offers the cure for it, salvation by grace through faith in him. And though for reasons we may never fathom, we suffer now, we will be raised or raptured to a perfect body in a perfect environment where there are no more tears unless perhaps tears of joy. And so verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. The people did have shepherds. This was the sad thing. They had the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests, but these were all wrong in their teaching about God. They distorted the character of God. In their self-righteousness, they portrayed God as demanding and angry, judgmental and distant. 
Their teachings heaped burdens upon the people and they, the so-called shepherds, refused to lift a finger to help them. Having a bad shepherd was the equivalent to not having one at all. Jesus being moved with compassion, this is a word coined by the writers of the Bible because there was not a strong enough word to describe the overwhelming compassion Jesus felt for the whole of humanity that he came to save. Every part of him, spiritually and emotionally and physically, was affected as he took it, as he looked out upon people and desired to respond to their deepest needs. And to do so, not just momentarily, but throughout their lives. Let me expand on that thought for just a moment. It's not uncommon for a person to cry out to God for help in a time of crisis. Many of you have done that before you were Christian. Something was terrible was happening in your life to you or someone that you loved, and you tried to make a deal with God, you cried out to God, I know I did it a couple of different times, only to get through it by God's grace and return to my old lifestyle. We want God to alleviate the crisis and return us to normal. God wants to turn us to himself and give us eternal life. He wants to begin in us a good work that he will go on accomplishing every day of our life. He wants to give our life purpose and meaning. He wants to make us more like Jesus. Healing us and helping us, that, that's not a problem for God. What is more difficult is getting a hold of our hearts, of us yielding our hearts so that he can mold and shape us into the image of his son. Often the worst thing God could do is simply alleviate our suffering. Because if he did, we would miss the rest of what he has planned for us, looking past the few decades we're here on earth and into eternity. Jesus is the great shepherd, and he sees everyone as potentially part of his flock. He wants all men everywhere to be able to recite and claim Psalm 23, and not just at a funeral, every day of their lives. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now we sometimes ask people if they see things as a glass half full or a glass half empty. Jesus saw the world as a glass overflowing. He saw the human race in terms of a plentiful harvest of souls waiting to be reaped. I think this is how Jesus sees the human race. It is a plentiful harvest of souls that needs to be reaped. We want to continue to think big when it comes to God and what he wants to do and what he can do. A harvest requires laborers or the fruit obviously will go to waste. A spiritual harvest requires the Lord send out laborers and Jesus connected the Lord sending out laborers to the prayers of his followers. It's interesting, he didn't say the fields are ripe for harvest so get out into those fields. He said the fields are ripe Let's pray for the Lord to raise up laborers who will go out into the field. So he began with prayer. And if we don't begin with prayer, we're putting the cart before the horse. In the very next chapter, Jesus is going to choose the 12 from out of the larger group of disciples following him, and he does it after pulling an all-nighter in prayer. In other words, he modeled for us what he was teaching us. He says, hey, The world is a harvest waiting to be reaped. Let's pray the Lord of the harvest sends laborers out and then that's exactly what he did. He prayed all night. We'll talk about it more next week if we're together, but how much praying can you do for 12 guys? All night, is it one an hour or how how does that work out? But he did and then God revealed to him his plan and they went with that plan. 
Concerning prayer, do we believe too little in the power of prayer because we see so few results? Or do we see so few results because we pray so little? It's a question each of us must answer for ourselves, but I will say this, as a group, as a church, we're always gonna need to pray more and not less. It's not a rebuke, it's just an encouragement. We want to be praying more uh, according to the word of God. And now, Jesus' prayer is motivated by his compassion. It all started with him being moved for compassion for the human race. He looked upon people, he saw their greatest need to hear the voice of the great shepherd to come into his flock to find rest for their weary souls. I can't help but wonder if we might lack compassion sometimes because the needs of the people we look out upon are masked by our culture with its comforts. For example, when you travel to the third world and see how billions of people live, it's not hard to be moved with compassion and want to do something to help them. They live pretty much just like the people lived in the first century, pretty much just like the people in this chapter succumbing to diseases that are easily curable, but they don't have the resources to do it. Living in squalor without the modern conveniences that we take for granted, and, and you're moved. That's why you're moved by these television commercials to you know, compassion on children and all that, and it's genuine because you see the need. In our own little corner of the world, the comforts of living tend to mask the real needs people have to be forgiven their sins and receive eternal life. It's as if they don't understand they are wretched poor, naked, and blind. When some crisis does come upon them, there are so many resources apart from faith in God that they ignore his efforts to reveal himself to them in their suffering. I was just talking to somebody the other day. He said, hey, do you, do you think the little pamphlet you wrote on suffering would be good in this situation for a person that he's witnessing to? And I said, sure, why not? And uh, when he went to give him the booklet, the guy said, hey, I'm not gonna read any of your Christian stuff. And so, suffering, going through a hard time, but he doesn't understand his real need. And in fact, oftentimes folks who are used to comfort blame God for their suffering as if they deserve to be left alone by God. It's like, hey, my life was fine, and then all of a sudden this God that you're talking about lets me get this disease. I just want to get back to my normal life. Well, here's a news flash. Your normal life is that you're going to die and perish eternally. That's what kind of life, because you don't realize that you're miserable, naked, wretched, poor, and blind, spiritually speaking. You think everything is going fine. You got money in the bank. You've got a job. You've got retirement. You know, you're relatively comfortable. I don't think we lack compassion in the sense we're calloused or uncaring, we get dulled by the creature comforts of our culture. And we don't look upon people as being as needy as they really are. And so one takeaway from this is when we look at people, we need to look at them the way Jesus did with those however many D glasses and say, hey, if they're not Christians, they're like sheep scattered. They, they have no shepherd to bring their souls into the flock. They need Christ. They're perishing. Jesus specifically instructed us to pray for laborers to be sent out into the Lord's harvest. He didn't even pray that you would pray about being one of the laborers. You understand what I mean? Everybody, they recoil and they say, I, just, I know what you're building up to. You're gonna ask me to do something. No. Jesus said, why don't you just pray that the Lord of the harvest would have his way in the hearts of his people 
and raise up laborers. And even Jesus, out of all the multitudes of people following him at that time, only 12 individuals were initially raised up. And so this isn't about everybody going out into the field of the world. This is about prayer. And we can do that, can't we? Can't we personally and publicly uh, pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up laborers? It's something that we need to include really in all of our meetings. Because the glass, as far as Jesus is concerned, is not half empty or half full, it's overflowing. There is a harvest, especially in these last days, amen?